You're listening to sermons from La Cunada Congregational Church and Pastor Kyle Sears. Join us in person every Sunday at 10 a.m. in La Cunada for worship. You can find more information about our church online at lacanadachurch.org. I'd like for you to think for a moment of some of your most treasured possessions, the things that either you've had for a long time or have for some reason a deep connection to, some meaning associated with it. I have a a chef's knife that I use every evening when I'm making dinner and, and I've become so used to the feel and weight of it in my hands that it's like an extension of who I am. And if that knife were to break or to get lost, I would, I would grieve. Um, it may be like a favorite blanket or a favorite spot on your couch that you know is yours. And when your kids sit there, you're like, hey, wait a minute, we're, there's a breach here. There's not, something's wrong. You know, I think that we, we all have parts of our life that is caught up in things that matter to us and that we would grieve if they got lost or destroyed. And so I want us to read this text that we're about to read with a bit of compassion because there's times when, when Jesus will rebuke someone or something goes wrong in the Bible, we're like, well, I would never be like that. I would follow Jesus to the end. But here I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of this person um, with, with a little bit of grace as we follow along. Because in every story, as we read through the Gospel of Mark, oftentimes when Jesus would invite someone to follow him, they say yes, but not this story. And this is one of the only times that we hear a no, a walking away from what Jesus invites. And I'm curious about what it would make, why it would make someone do that. What makes it difficult to follow Jesus? And so this is Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. But you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he replied to him and said, teacher, I've kept all of these things since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, well, you lack one thing. Go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving for he had many possessions. And then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astounded and said to one another, well, then who could be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. So Peter began to say to him, look, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And so as always in the Gospel of Mark, the destination of Jesus' journey lays before us. Here Jesus is continuing that move to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. But here he is met on this journey with a question that we all come to face at some point. What must I do to find eternal life? 
Although the way this question is asked, it's a little bit different. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Just before this passage, Jesus has taught that we must become like children to receive God's promises. And a wealthy man hears that story, is like, oh yeah, like an inheritance. Something that's given by right and by privilege, something that is owed to me. Not a gift, but something that was mine all along. And so what must I do to inherit these sorts of riches? And Jesus' answer is twofold. One, only God is good. Not you, not me. No one in this conversation, only God. But it's easy to think that the, that the ease of our life that money affords is a blessing from God. It's easy in those moments to assume that our earnings there in our work life must translate to earnings somewhere else. That since I'm good at my job, I must just be intrinsically good, period. And so Jesus then recites these 10 commandments. Only, I don't know if you picked this up, but in the recitation, there's a change here. Instead of saying, do not covet, he says, do not defraud. Specifically, do not defraud the poor. And surprisingly, this man, I think, answers honestly and says, yeah, I've done all that stuff. I've been good since my youth. And I think that statement alone says, all right, this guy's better than I am, probably better than you are, (laughs) if he's been able to keep the Ten Commandments for that long. And it might be tempting to read this passage and see his ultimate response as saying, no, I can't do this like you've asked, and then think better of ourselves. But by all accounts, this is someone that we would be happy to sit next to in church happy to know as a friend. But something inside him still feels the need to ask the question, how do I inherit eternal life? Something seems to feel within him that all of this that he's done, accumulating wealth, being successful, and pious and righteous, eternal life still eludes him. That there's more to life than what he has done up to that point. And here Jesus agrees with him. There's one more thing left to be done, is what Jesus will say. And he responds to this question in love. I want us to, to understand that. The Mark says that as Jesus looked at this guy, he saw someone with this deep aching within his soul that senses there is more out there, that senses that Jesus has the answer of what that more could be. Up to this point in Mark, we've seen Jesus heal people from demonic possession several times. And here Jesus will seek to rid this man of a possession of a different sort. I think maybe a literal sort. That rather than possessing wealth, what has happened is the wealth has possessed this man. And he has become so entangled in this that he could not imagine life or eternal life even without that stuff without that comfort, without that access and ease. And that even though he knows that it's ultimately unfulfilling, it's still all that he knows. There's still comfort to it. Like that spot on the couch or your favorite pair of jeans. And to lose those, well, I don't know what life looks like at that point. And I think that's a pretty common feeling That for all of our acquisitions and accomplishments, we still feel like in some way we don't measure up. There's still something that we miss. 
that all of our piety and possessions don't help us feel connected to our faith. We go through the motions, but we know that we need something different, except what's being asked of us sometimes is too much. The disciples can't believe that Jesus would tell this guy to sell his possessions and run off and it's just like, hey, hey, Jesus, why are you turning this rich dude away from hanging out with us? We would have been like living large pretty easily. Because they too had grown up thinking that the wealthy and the pious were made for heaven. If a guy like that can't get in, then who stands a chance? But what Jesus says is that God makes these things possible because it is God who gives this blessing freely like a father who lavishes gifts upon his children, not out of entitlement after death, but in love during life. That's the way that God relates to us. Not that you'll get my stuff when I'm gone, but instead I'm freely sharing everything I have with you right now. Jesus' instruction to sell what you have and give it to the poor and follow me is the way of healing for this person an invitation to become part of a family where we do not set ourselves up against one another, comparing who has the most, who's loved the most, who's favored the most, who's closest to heaven because of all the proof that we can show here on earth. A man named Howard Thurman wrote a book in 1949 called Jesus and the Disinherited. And he was a man whose life was marked by the realities of the Jim Crow South of exclusion and of hatred because of his skin color. And this book becomes one of Martin Luther King's favorite books to teach him about what it means to be someone, as Howard Thurman says, with their back against the wall. Thurman would write that it is necessary for the privileged to work with the underprivileged to create a common environment, a way where we can be together with mutual worth and value. And that fear and deceit and hatred, which is part of the natural course of the disinherited, of the rejected, of segregation and exclusion, is able to be put aside for something different in Jesus. The segregation which was formal at that time and informal even today is an evil that undermines the way of Jesus. And so his invitation is that somehow a change has to happen from within where we challenge the very notion of who is our enemy, who is apart from us. And the way we do that is by finding our common humanity and in Thurman's view, the way that we find our common humanity is when we gather together in worship with one another. When we come into sacred space and lay our needs bare in front of others. I think his teaching is in part why Martin Luther King would say that Sunday morning remains the most segregated hour of the week. Even today, it continues to remain one of the most segregated hours of the week. But imagine when people of all different walks of life, the rich and the poor, the welcome and the excluded, find themselves 
in common worship together so that they might all confess their poverty of health or their poverty of income, while others are confessing their poverty of generosity or their poverty of compassion. You see, the disciples say, well, if, if the way to eternal life is the giving away everything you have to the poor and then following Jesus, well, Jesus, we've done that. We've left homes and family and fields and possessions. I mean, we weren't rich to begin with, but we certainly aren't any richer now. And Jesus promises that those who would lose that sort of stuff would find a different sort of gain. And in this litany of phrases of those who would give away mothers and brothers and sisters and farms and fields and places, it's meant to tap into this deep, desired promise of longing that God has made to God's people throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Deeply connected to Israel's hope that under the current system of how they were living was not available to most people. These are promises of connection to their ancestors, promise of children and lineage into the future, promises of land that would stay forever theirs. Jesus says that many of you gave up homes and brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, and fields. When Jesus gives them back what will be theirs a hundredfold in this age, though, one thing is left out. It's father. That's one thing that's not put back in there. I think it might be because it is from the father that this time they received inheritance. And that kind of inheritance of simply getting what was already gained and trading into the next generation is not the kind of hope that Jesus wants to put before us. Instead, he related to God as a father that gives something deeper than just a house and an annuity. Because in the giving away of all these other things, what we find is a reliance upon a God who embodies love and devotion and sacrifice. And so perhaps without a father, we are set free from the expectations of inheritance and wealth and the systems that then would perpetuate the unequal distribution for those who need it most. And so it's real tempting that once we get to this part of talking about leaving everything behind to follow Jesus, that we quickly pivot and turn this into a spiritual conversation. Jesus is saying we should be poor in spirit. He doesn't really want me to give up stuff. He's happy that I got stuff. I mean, who gave me that stuff? It was God. So why would I give it away? But the way of healing is the way of the marginalized and the poor and the humble. The way that we are healed to discover the depth of God's love and grace is when we move into circles with those who are most like Jesus. Homeless, poor, rejected, despised. What Howard Thurman teaches is that it is black brothers and sisters who know what it's like to be oppressed, that have the most in common with Jesus who was also oppressed, 
living in a land that was not claimed by him or his people, who had his back to the wall, who would speak of justice only to find himself crucified. And the easiest way for us then to be free from our possessions is to just give them away. Because in the economy of God's kingdom, how can there be wealthy Christians and poor people in the same community, region, state, or world? Now we'll say wealth is relative and, you know, I only have three cars in La Cunada, so that makes me on the poor side of things. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, is that Jesus' teaching is to let go of everything we have and follow God. Because in turn, those who find themselves last will be first in God's kingdom. And those who claw their way to the top might find themselves surprised to find that that didn't do it for them. That even though they have everything they could have ever dreamed of, there's still something they lack. And so the call in the season of Lent is to surrender everything we have to Jesus freely. You may have just given up chocolate or social media, but that's meant to be a taste of what it's like to give our entire life away. In fact, to give up on the whole system that sets us up as better than our neighbors, better than those who have too long endured systems of oppression because of the color of their skin or who they love or who they worship. Instead, we are invited to be a people in giving all of ourselves away to inherit abiding eternal life. All it takes is disinheriting everything else that seeks to be a replacement for eternity. And so my hope is that as those of us who have tasted the steadfast and abiding love of God, that we would freely give all that we have that pales in comparison to that love. That we would share freely with others so that they might discover just the taste of God's grace that rewards and gives freely simply because they see the humanity in the eyes of another. May we be a people who have tasted eternal life and surrender all to Jesus. Amen.